0: You can be seated. Good morning. A couple of weeks ago, about two weeks into this sermon series in Second Peter, I was complaining to Ryan, man, I think I've bitten off more than I can chew. I wish this was 12 weeks, not 6 weeks. And then Ryan was kind, he was like, well, you can, you can shorten it out, and then I can finish it when, when I come back from sabbatical. And I was like, no, 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 because I really want to preach from chapter 3. So nice try, but I get that one. Starting in chapter 3 we have a passage that has judgment and redemption, prophets and apostles, a flood and fire, all in 10 verses. So let's hear from the Lord together, 2nd Peter chapter 3 starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this to us. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now many of us might know the gospel message of everything in the beginning was good and then man sinned and everything after that was bad according to bad sin or according to man's sins. And God promised that in the beginning or that from the beginning he would send a savior who would save his people and who would crush the one who tempted man and woman, Satan. And so for thousands and thousands of years, man and woman waited for the Savior to come. And it looked like it would come in different ways. And then finally we see in the book of Matthew where Jesus, the Son of God himself, came. Truly man, truly God. And he lived a perfect life and he was killed because of that. But even though man tried to stop him, that was according to the will of the Lord, because he, by his death, was the sacrifice for man, what man couldn't do for himself. Man couldn't sacrifice himself for himself, only like an alien feature could. And so Jesus was sacrificed, was crushed and killed on the cross. And then three days later, overcoming the power of sin and evil, he rose from the grave, giving hope to all of God's people that that we would be raised from the grave as well and would live with him forever. But that's not where the story of the gospel ends. Because there's, there's one amazing thing that must also happen. Otherwise, it's just kind of a great story. God is coming back for his people. See, when he rose after the third day, 40 days later, he he ascended into the heavens where he was ruling and reigning over all things. But there will be a time, the scriptures say, where he's going to come back and he's bringing the heavens with him. And it will look new, like an amazing kingdom no one could ever imagine. And he's coming back. And there are people who doubt this. And that's, that's the tone of where our text is. Where there are people in the church that Peter is writing to who are not only doubting that Jesus is coming back, but they're actually telling people or compelling other people to believe or persuading others that this is all a big joke and the Lord is not coming back. So, our text, I think, simply is that the Lord is coming and that the day of the Lord is coming quickly. So, sermon's over. To define one thing, the day of the Lord, that's been talked about, I think, uh, nearly 30 times in the Old Testament and a handful of times in the New Testament or the day of Christ in the New Testament. The day of the Lord is essentially when God's patience towards his creation and people completely runs out. And so he comes and he wrecks havoc on all evil against him and and he preserves to the point of saving and rescuing those who are his, the righteous ones, he calls and what Peter is saying, those who are mocking or scoffing God, saying that, that he is not coming back, actually the Lord is coming back for them. And he's going to lay waste of all of that. So he does this in a couple of ways from our text. I think the first way that he does this is the day of the Lord is coming, Peter is saying. And so Peter wants to first remind us of it. So number one, if you're using an outline, the bulletin on the back side of it, Peter reminds us that the day of the Lord is coming very quickly. Now he does this first by pastorally telling us that the day of the Lord is coming. He he says that this is the, the second letter that he's writing or that he's written to his people. The first one, most likely 1 Peter. This is now the second letter that he's writing in order to stir up the Christians to have great hope. Now in the first letter, they were being brutally persecuted against and this one they were being persuaded of other myths or other religions or believing that this religion isn't even true and so he's writing a second letter how kind of Peter to write a second letter what a reminder for us it is that we do not always remember what we ought to remember and that sometimes it's good to receive a reminder This is a good thing for parents to do. Always remind your children of the gospel. This is something for husbands and wives to do or or everyone to do. Always be in a place where you are reminded of what God has said from his word. But he not only does this by way of reminder, he pastorally does this by look at how he calls them. He calls them beloved. Not friend, not buddy, not bestie, but beloved. Where his love is overwhelmingly for them and for their betterment and out of his love for them he wants to remind them that the day of the Lord is coming but he not only does it pastorally he does it to build up their knowledge he does it in the first verse it says stirring up your sincere mind or another way to say it is he wants to make the gospel bright in front of them again because he's afraid that it would be tempted or, or that it would be dimmed or falling to the wayside behind them where you can't look at the gospel enough. And so he wants to present them with the reality and the truth of Scripture because he wants to stir them up so that it remains a bright light in their life. We do this in a variety of ways whether you watch your wedding video every year on your anniversary or, or whether you watch that game footage of when you one time scored the touchdown or, or you just want to have those reminders on Facebook. We want to be stirred up in the things that were good and Peter wants the one thing that he is stirring them up, up, up with is that the Lord in his kindness is coming back for his people. He, he talks about their sincere mind giving witness to the fact that these people believed this and he wants it to be kindled or set on fire, set ablaze. So just in application from this, are we placing ourselves in a situation where we're continually stirred up, whether through community, whether through just putting our head in the book and reading it, whether through never leaving our prayer closet, are we allowing ourselves to be stirred up by the truths of the gospel? Oftentimes we don't because we're lazy, right? Right? We have to be at work at 8. Can I wake up at 7.30 and get there at 8? Or can I first devote myself to the Word, to the Lord? We do this because we're self-centered. We want to think about the things that we want to think about rather than the things that God wants us to think about. John Calvin says, the sloth of the flesh smothers the truth once received. There is still a need for godly teachers to deeply impress the truth on the memory of their hearers. And so Peter wants to remind us of who God is and what he's going to do. So he not only does this pastorally, not only does this by stirring us up, but he also does this by highlighting holy prophets. He's saying, look, remind yourself of the holy prophets there in verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I keep saying a prophets. I've been doing that since like 6 a.m. and I have no idea why holy prophets. So this is an explicit reference to the Old Testament. He's saying our confidence should be rooted not in experience or or not just in the things that we can remind ourselves of, but in the scriptures themselves. The Old Testament, inspired by the Spirit, spoke a lot about the coming judgment of God. It's not just something that Jesus made up or that Jesus talked about or even that the apostles talked about. Peter's telling the churches. To not buy the arguments of scoffers. Because because the Christian's argument is rooted in the scriptures. Whereas false teachers or false prophets, their arguments rooted in immorality or false history. So he's saying, look back to the holy prophets. So a little taste of what the prophets said in, in the words of the past. In Psalm 50, starting in verse 1, it says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge. And this is typical phrasing in in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. But it's not just in the wisdom literature. It's also in in the major prophets. So places like Isaiah 13, he says, I will punish The world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake out of its place. At the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. So the idea that the day of the Lord is not coming is just not a biblical argument. And so Peter is saying this from wisdom literature, from major prophets, but also here in minor prophets. He, he does this in Micah chapter 1 verse 4, and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Or in Malachi 4 verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant." And all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now these are just a couple, a handful of examples from the Old Testament that says that the Lord is coming back, and it's not going to be a good thing for the ungodly. It's a definite argument from our scriptures. R. C. Sproul says that the truth of Scripture always demolishes speculation. And here's what these false teachers or what these scoffers are doing. They're not necessarily trying to build up an argument against Scripture. They're just trying to raise doubt. They're taking some truths here and there, piecing it together, and then throwing a question mark at the end. Like, like that's okay? Like, is it really hot outside? And it's like, well, that's not even a question. You're just saying things and throwing a question mark at the end. It reminds us of the, the slight evilness or the heavy-handed evilness through slight words that Satan used in the garden in Genesis 3 where he pulled a couple of things that seemed to be true through a question mark at the end and he's asking, did God really say that? That raised doubt and one person's life and history started to unfold itself. So he does this by highlighting The Old Testament. And then lastly in this section, he does this by highlighting the apostles' words. Look at verse 2. It said, you should remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter's saying that we should also look to the New Testament. The words that the apostles would pin, inspired by God himself, that we should take heed of that. Now, Ron, our executive pastor, one of our elders, last week preached and had a great slide. And I thought about that last night. Too late for a slide. But he showed a parallel between Jude, where it looks like Peter's getting a lot of his language, and he's showing how Jude and Second Peter really mirror each other. Jude, in the same way, in Jude, in the first chapter, verse 17 says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we would be wise to understand and consider that when we are faced with scoffing about what may or may not happen in the end, we should turn to the book that we know to be true and really helpful for us, starting with the Old Testament and going into the New Testament. Now, I won't read a bunch of passages from the New Testament, but just to give you some accounting of it, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Twenty-three of those books, a big portion, explicitly talk about the day of the Lord explicitly talk about when the lord is returning with both judgment and mercy on the people of the earth. And then in one of the other books that doesn't reference it explicitly, it talks about it implicitly where it's clearly referring to Christ coming back. And then that leaves three others. What do we do with those? Well, they're one chapter long. So, give them a break. They had a lot of things to put in there. But when you think about Is the day of the Lord not only important, yes, because the the scriptures talk about it all over the place, but also is it going to happen? And if you believe any part of scripture, then you must also believe the other parts of scripture where the day of the Lord is coming, and it is not going to be good for the ungodly, and it's going to be rich and awesome for those who he sees as righteous by his son. The New Testament is full, some hundreds of references with warnings about judgment, information about the Lord coming to gather his own and and teaching about the fact that he will judge the wicked and establish a great mighty kingdom, bringing eternal righteousness back to the earth. And Peter in the second verse pulls up the Old Testament and the New Testament and basically says, argue with this. Now it's interesting, when you have a culture of people who are known to the Bible, you can go with them with what Scripture says. In fact, many of your testimonies, when coming to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, someone might have just shown you passages out of the Bible. And in cultures where that's not really the case, where you don't have an encounter, maybe you just totally don't believe the Bible at all is having any sense of echoing effect in our lives, the, the Bible also highlights a way to do this. It talks about creation. So what does not only the Bible say about itself, but also what does the Bible say about, well, everything around us? And it's clear, at least to those who are observing properly, that not all things can continue. Even though this is the argument of the scoffers. Everything's just going to keep on going. It's going to be all right. I'm sure there's some kind of country song in there where, you know, the diesel truck will just keep going. The dog will always return home, right? And Peter is saying, just look in the text but also around the text. So in order to apply this to our lives, do you listen to the prophets and the apostles? Do you know them enough to have confidence that the Lord is returning? Not just seeking them for advice, not just having a proverb of the day, though that's very great and wonderful, but you are so consumed with the word that whenever faced with scoffing or mocking of the Lord Jesus, you go, no, 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 no. Let me take you to Isaiah. Let me take you to Matthew. Let me take you to Romans. The Lord is not done with his people, and he's certainly not done with many people's wickedness. So to recap, the day of the Lord is coming, Peter writes, to stir us up by the way of a reminder. Pastorally, he does this. Promoting knowledge, he does this. Highlighting the Old Testament and highlighting the New Testament. And why does he do this? Well, he wants the church when faced with opposition. To rest in the hope of God's reign and return. So first, he reminds us. And then second, the day of the Lord is coming. And scoffers overlook it. Second, scoffers overlook it, starting in verse 3. And ultimately, why do they do this? Well, they're doing this to justify their lifestyle. Verse 3 says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires... Down in verse 5, it says they don't just accidentally do this, or maybe they got persuaded by something around them. They deliberately, the text says, scoff and persuade and are deceitful. Like there's, they're acting as if there's no consequences for their daily actions. Now, all of us have taken a test at least once in life, and we really, really hoped that the teacher would come in and say, hey, we're not actually, we're not actually going to take a test. Or at least like open book tests. Or anyone who doesn't study, everyone gets an A. You get an A, you get an A, you get an A. And that's how these scoffers are living. They're living in such a perverse way as if the Lord isn't going to come back and judge. And it's dangerous. And they do this by asking mocking questions. Verse 4, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Like I I said before, the argument that they're saying is there's nothing new under the sun. We read that too. God's never intervened in a judgmental way towards his creation. He's never gone into creation and and turned it upside down. So the idea that he's somehow going to come back and judge, that's totally unlike him. He's never done that. And Peter goes, this is what they overlook. Look at verse 5. They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now stop there. Before everything, God created everything. And within that creating everything, there were were violent interactions of, of how creation came to be, bringing up what we would call land or whatever from the water scientifically just seems outrageous in thinking of how all of that works and how there was a power behind it. So not only was God creating everything, but within that he was intervening, catastrophically it seems, within his creation. Look at verse 6 now. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now I don't know if I'm saying deluged right, but it means totally flooded. So... And by means of these things, the world that then existed was flooded with water completely. So a second time we see God intervening within his creation where at once he made everything from the waters and now is using the water to destroy everything. The world, no doubt, had its origin from these watery sources and they were sustained by these watery sources and yet it pleased the Lord to use Waters for the purpose of destroying all of the evil within the earth. Earth was flooded, completely flooded with water. We see this historically from the account of Genesis 7 in verse 21. It says, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam or that swarm on the earth and all mankind. The earth was flooded by water, whereas previously the earth was created, in many ways, from these watery sources. And so what these scoffers are doing is that they are overlooking God's past catastrophic intervention. And by doing that, they're also now overlooking God's catastrophic future. The thing that he's telling them what will happen, they say it didn't happen in the past. There's no reason to believe that's going to happen in the future. Look at verse 7. It says, But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We see parallel phrases and words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on, on those who do not know or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What Peter is saying is just like how the earth was obliterated in many ways on top by flooding waters. That's going to happen when the Lord returns, except you won't be able to outswim it because you will not be able to stand its heat. It will come like fire engulfing everything in flames, not to completely destroy the earth, but to purify from all infection. That is the ungodly. Troubling when you really think about it. The earth will be burned by fire and by God's word. So an application to bring this to us. Do you know of God's interventions? Do you see the flood not only is actually happening, but, but a foretaste of what is going to happen to, God's, to the ungodly people in God's creation? Do, do you take heed of what it says about your sin and how serious God is towards man and women's sin? How how much he loves what he created when he called it very good that he doesn't want it to reek of a stench of man's sinfulness. And so he's going to purify it with fire. Now in many ways that only highlights and elevates God's power. I I can't even light a fireplace that has like gas lighting coming from the side. Much less engulfing the earth. The power of God is shown there. But also the depth of sin and how much... God despises evilness to the point where he will gas it out and remove it from the earth. Now, the scoffers snubbed at what this argument was. The scoffers snubbed what was proven from Scripture and what was written from Scripture. And what does it look like in your own life to know this? Well, in many ways, to know God's intervening past, it should stir you up because you'll know if you're a Christian that he didn't just intervene at creation. He didn't just intervene at the flood, but he totally intervened in our lives when he sent his son to live a perfect life on the earth, to die a, a perfect substitutionary death, to rise from the grave and ascend into the heavens. Nothing looks more powerful And more amazing to a believer than that intervention. So so to the Christian, thinking about the interventions give us tremendous rest and encouragement. We're encouraged by by God promising to actually rid the earth of injustice. Rid the earth of ungodliness. Because that's our daily struggle, right? We're interacting with ungodly and wicked things. In many ways, we're part of it. And God wants to remove that permanently from His creation we're reminded that when thinking about the past, we were not consumed by the flood. Those who were God's people were preserved. Now we see that happening in the flood when God granted mercy to Noah and his family, his wife, his three sons, their wives, where he had them build a boat so that they were able to abstain from the wrath of the flood. And when we think back on that, we are encouraged by how we were preserved of God's people, and then we look forward and we're encouraged, because if that happened, then we also won't be burned by the fire for in Christ. Now, in many ways, we're also not only stirred by it or encouraged by it, but also shaken by it. This text also, just in this portion, not even moving on, should give us unrest, missional unrest, I'm going to call it. Where the idea that, that there is coming a judgment on the ungodly and the Lord promises his people that by preaching of his truth and by reaching people of the God, with the gospel, that that is how people are saved. And so in many ways we are reminded of what mass flooding really looks like. You know, maybe some of you were a part of some or we certainly always see them on TV where, where when a flooding happens to a community or even in many ways to a whole part of a state, How much expense people go at rescuing people from a flood. Helicopters, boats, money, everyone's sending canned goods. Some people are just jumping into the water in order to save someone from dying from a flood from a house. And in many ways, we have the gospel and people around us. And though they do not know it, the water is rising up to their feet, up to their ankles. Up to their last breath. Because the day of the Lord is coming. And it will spare no expense on ungodliness. And the thing that we can give people is the gospel. And we can give them the truth of the reality that Jesus saves. Or we think about a mass fire. Like what's happening in northern New Mexico or other parts of the country where the same thing is happening. People spare no expense in order to preserve what is theirs or at least to save people around them. And do we know people around us who we love? And would we save them if we could? And we can, by God's word, placing it in front of their lives. And the question, applying it to our lives, do we see the day of the Lord coming quickly? And do we actually care about them? So to recap, the day of the Lord is coming And Peter says that the scoffers are questioning what God says and what God intends. And he does this by highlighting that they're just justifying their lifestyle. They're asking mocking questions or defaming questions about God. And he reminds them and us to look, not overlook, but look at God's past catastrophic intervention. And knowing that that will give us insight of what his future catastrophic intervention will look like. Now Peter does this because of his love for his people. Because when they are faced with opposition, he wants them to rest in the hope of God's reign and God's return. And he does this by pointing them to the word and then also by pointing them to everything around them, creation. And he's saying, don't believe in the scoffers. Friends, stir yourself up in what is true. Now thirdly, the day of the Lord is coming and the Lord will bring it. So Peter is wanting to stir us up by reminding us that the day of the Lord is coming. And then thirdly, highlighting that the Lord will bring it. Now, how will he bring it? That's, that's kind of the, the next two verses are really the gravity of the text. I think a lot of people who would be receiving this word go, I know that the day of the Lord is coming, but where in the world is he? Why has he not come? Remember that this letter would have been written 30-ish years after Christ would have ascended into the heavens. And they wanted him to come back now, not tomorrow, not a generation later, not a hundred years later. And so their anxiety might show itself by wondering if he's not coming back today, did he really mean what he said yesterday? So look what Peter says in verse 8, but do, you not, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Obviously taking wisdom from Psalm 90, for a thousand years and your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Now, what's being asked here? What is God waiting for? Why is he not coming back now? We would ask the same question. Like, watch the news. It, like, enough is enough. This is awful. Come back. And it's a great question to ask. It's a great prayer to beg. And Peter is saying, remind yourself of this. A thousand years is like a moment to God. Peter gives this illustration to tell us that that God sees things differently than we do. But here's a case where Peter is saying that God is transcendent, beyond not only our understanding, but over all things. He's not in time like we might think of time as like. Now, I'm not into sci-fi. I don't understand time travel. I've read a couple of those books. I just... Don't know how it works, how you can travel to different places in time. and you know, What does that even mean? And here he's saying, remind yourself that, that he is not bound by anything. Because he's over all things. And, and it might seem like a long time to you. And yes, 30 years is a long time to anyone. But it's just a moment to the Lord. Now how comforting this is. What he's indicating here is that some Christians have been sucked into some false teachers' criticism. Or they might have listened to these false teachers or these scoffers and and started possibly following them or listening too much. And so Peter, from a pastoral heart, is, is writing to them, reminding them, remember that the day of the Lord is coming. And even though it doesn't come today, that doesn't mean that he stopped caring about his people. That doesn't mean he can't come back. That doesn't mean he's indifferent about the things that are going on in life. Peter's essentially saying, and this is my translation, look, Chill out. Simmer down. For you, it's been a long time. For God, it's been moments. So do we trust God's timing? Not only in this case, but also in other cases in our life. It's one thing to to trust Him on a daily basis, but that that big thing at the end of our lives where He's going to return, do we trust His timing in that? I think that's one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to to daily trust that God will do graciously and with all goodness everything he desires to do. Because we have our own ideas of what's good, right? I wanted to be a professional baseball player. And when that was never going to happen, he was still ruling and reigning. He didn't stop caring for his people. But here the question is not only why isn't Jesus coming back, But now the question that we see answered in verse 9 is, what is he doing in the meantime? If if a thousand years is like a moment to him, and there are lots of moments in life, what is he doing with his time? Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John Calvin says the Lord defers his coming or delays his coming so that he might invite all mankind to repentance. He does not hasten the end of the world in order to give to all time to repent. Let me read that again. He does not hasten the end of the world. And he does this in order to give time for all to repent. We see the gracious patience of God overflowing from this text. Now, we look at this text 2,000 years after Christ descended into heaven. Now, let's say you became a Christian at the age of 15. Isn't it very, very kind of the Lord that He delayed His coming when you were 13? Because He had you in mind? The, these precious promises that Peter is talking about, these are not just ideas, but they're people's names where Jesus from before all time, knew his people and chose his people and was going to always save his people. And even though it looks like we might think he doesn't know what he's doing or why is he waiting so long or what is he doing up there in heaven? Is he not bored ruling and reigning? And he's patiently allowing people to hear his gospel and he's saving them by redeeming them and bringing them to himself. Essentially what is happening is the Lord is not done doing what the Lord does. The Lord is not done being gracious to people who did not deserve his mercy and grace. And if that's the case, man, take, take as long as you need. We'll be down here working. Because you know, we know that we're a part of this. If, if you say that, that you want us to go to the ends of the earth and, and you're not going to stop doing what you're doing until all of your people are saved and I want to be part of that, I want to go If that means Starbucks, great. If that means North Africa, sign me up and give me a one-way ticket. Because the Lord is not done calling people to himself. And so we are amazingly a part of that. He is not slow. He is patient. Now, in reading this text and meditating on it this week, I found it so, so humbling. One, that, that whenever I have a question about God's goodness, there's always this subtle, wonderful rebuke. What are you doing uh, I mean, a moment is like, or a thousand years is like a moment to me. It's pretty good. What are you doing up there? I'm saving people from the deadness of their sin. Okay, well, keep on doing that then. It's encouraging that we are a part of that as believers, that He didn't stop 1,000 years ago, that He knew us and saved us. We didn't deserve any of this, but He knew us and He had us in mind and He called us to Himself. We're thankful for His delay, even though we wanted to come right now. Yet it's also daunting at the time that that continually winds up. Notice how he says a thousand years to you is like a moment to me. Not a moment to you is like a thousand years to me. Friend, if you're here and you're not a believer, this is not a guarantee for your life to go as you plan. This is not a guarantee that you have as much time as you can to to respond to the Lord. Because you don't know what your afternoon is going to look like. You don't know what your lunch is going to look like. You don't know what 50 years from now is going to hold. Your time, according to God's word, is moment by moment running out. And he's calling you to repent of your sins and to believe in him as a savior. He's the only one who can save you. And so, friend, call out to him respond to him like the prophets of the old told you to do, like the apostles of the new command us to portray and to live out. Call out to him as the Savior. You may not have time. And that's not just like a booby trap or a nightmare at Halloween. That is the Lord saying, you don't know. And do you want to end your life that way? Respond now if you are not in Christ and believe in him. What he provides for his people is something that you will not get anywhere else. And he calls you to repent and respond. John Owen says, Satan's greatest success is in making people think that they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. The time is now because it may not be allowed tomorrow. So this motivates us. Not to tip my hand at next week's passage, but it motivates us to live differently because our moments matter, our days matter, because the gospel that we get to be a part of is going out and we are a part of that moment by moment. Now I do want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about the any in that verse 9, the any will perish, because to a couple of people or to some people this, this makes us wonder, is God just going to save any and everyone? The objection here is that Jesus dies for everyone and that he's waiting until everyone to be a Christian, but we know that people pass away without believing in him. So Peter isn't teaching universalism where everyone is saved no matter what. I think if you just look at the text grammatically, what is happening here is Peter is speaking towards specific people. The Lord is patient toward you, the text says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should perish. Or another way that this could be translated, the Lord is long-suffering toward you, the this, this second person plural, to, to y'all. So he has these people in mind. Yeah, y'all from the pulpit. So he's talking to people and he's saying, the Lord is patient to you. And don't you know they would have, reminded, they would have been reminded of what they were maybe yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago without Christ. So grammatically, it's, it's easy to make sense of what is happening here. The Lord is patient toward you, not willing that any of you should perish, But that all of you should come to repentance. Peter is trying to stir up this church, not only to remind themselves of the gospel, but if there are any within their midst who don't believe it, he wants them to be saved by trusting in Christ. Contextually, Peter is speaking to a specific group of people, those who received great and precious promises in chapter one. They received new life, or everlasting life. He calls them beloved, we saw at the beginning of chapter 3. Those who are opposite of the scoffers and seeing them as rebukable, who are said to be identified as the elect. So the context of the passage is God's wrath is against the wicked. And his patience isn't towards the wicked, but is towards those whom he would save and those whom he would bring towards himself. Doctrinally, there's there's just a whole lot of stuff that could be said about this. I would just encourage you to Google, does God desire all people to be saved by John Piper? Or if you just Google John Piper, there's a billion articles you could read. But what's being said here in the text is that God loves his people with great patience. So giving them time to respond to them. And when that time is up, he will come in the day of the Lord for his enemies. Now lastly in this section, the day of the Lord is coming and the Lord will bring it. But how? He's going to bring it with wrath and justice. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we have just a picture of what it's going to look like towards the ungodly. The day of the Lord towards the ungodly will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now this roar isn't like, you know an MGM line and before a movie. It's a, it's a roar like a, like a whistling of an arrow, like a quick yet disastrous. And the heavenly bodies, it says, or all of the elements of the earth, will be destroyed by fire and dissolved. They'll be purged and purified by fire. Clearly, Peter listened to Jesus. When Jesus said in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Isaiah 66 says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, in his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, in his rebuke with flames and fire. Applying this to our lives, do we truly understand God's return to triumph over wickedness? If you're in Christ, you hope for this because you know of what that means for God's people. It means that the same Lord who was with Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus will be with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. But for the wicked, this is not only a warning call, but a frightening picture of what is going to happen. And so the call to you is to respond to the Lord where, where and when he offers kindness in responding and repenting to him, or this will be your future. John Stott says, he who came in humility and shame will return in spectacular magnificence. What a picture that will look like unless you're on the other side, unless you are the opposite of God's army. So to recap, the day of the Lord is coming and Peter says that God will bring it and it will come as fire, purifying his world for his kingdom. And he's writing to people who may be in doubt or fear, being surrounded by false teachers, and he's wanting, to, he's wanting to encourage them to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ for rest and hope because Jesus is reigning and ruling and he's coming again. Knowing this should bring all of us confidence that he is coming, comfort that when he does come, it will be very, very good. In closing, I want to remind you of a story from the Old Testament that we know to be true, this amazing story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were three young men were judged because they didn't succumb to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't worship what he wanted them to worship. They didn't bow down to him. And so by penalty, they were thrown into a fiery furnace to die. And these men were bound in their cloaks, it says, and they were thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. And it was so hot that even the people who brought them to the furnace Were burnt up and killed. And these three fell into the burning fiery furnace. Except something amazing happened that Nebuchadnezzar quickly saw. Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, the scriptures say, when he declared to his counselors, I thought we threw three people into the fire. And they said, Yeah, we did. And he said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods or an angel, it seems like, to him. And so Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning furnace and he called these three men out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And all the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies. Their hair was not singed. Their clothes were not harmed. There wasn't even a smell of burning on them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. Now the question for us this morning is not, will Jesus come back? Because of course he will. The question for us, the question for you, the question for me, is will the fire that comes, by rejecting Christ or by overlooking his call to repent and trust in him, Will the fire that comes destroy you like the scripture promises the ungodly? Or will you be saved by drawing near the God who preserved those three men in the fire? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in me. The call to us in thinking about the day of the Lord brings us joy. Because Him, he that knew no sin bore all shame and guilt and punishment and wrath for us. So when we hide in him, we will be preserved forever. In the same way that Noah was preserved through the flood, we will not be crushed by it or we will not be burned by the fire. Do you trust in that God? Because he's wanting you to come to him in repentance. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful and thankful. And overwhelmed at who you are and what you did for us on the cross. You did for us what we did not deserve. You saved us. For we were once enemies. But you made us your people. Lord, we know how costly that was to your son by the words of your scripture. And we know that in the same power that he came... And in the same power that you flooded the earth, and in the same power that you created everything from nothing, that same power you will will come for your people. So Lord, we ask that you will transform our hearts and change us to where we now live new lives, lives where we give witness to them and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.